Welcome to Nefarious New York. I'm Allison. And I'm Meredith. So I said last week this was a listener recommendation, and it is. And I'm looking at it right now and realizing I don't know how to pronounce the town. But Cohoes? <laughs> Sorry. What? I got to look it up now because I'm like... I don't know. Cohoes? Let me see. Cohoes. Cohoes. Uh, okay. It says Cohoes. I just think it's funny. Okay. I feel like I'm back in kindergarten that I'm laughing at that, but... Well, I don't know if Cohoes would be kindergarten. Cafarts would be kindergarten. But we might not have known what hoes were. I would like to give a shout out to my brother-in-law, John, who tried to save a baby bunny from his dog to no avail. The baby bunny oh. died. My brother-in-law's my hero. Johnny, I love you. Wanted to give a shout out to Mandy Schumacher. She is the listener who recommended this case this week. I believe she lives next door to the place this took place. Well, thank you. I always love when people get in touch with us. I mm -hmm. think it's really cool. Yeah, I hope it is accurate according to her recollection. So let's okay. jump on in and see. The Grotto family was living in Cohoes, New York, which is a small city in the northeast section of Albany County. They lived in a small two-story apartment. So I was confused when researching this. So the building is in two stories, but the apartment had an upstairs and a downstairs. Oh, okay. Virginia and John Grotto had seven children and an eighth child on the way. Wow. John was 31 years old in 1978 and an unemployed truck driver. He had a reputation for being a heavy drinker and abusive. Virginia was 30 years old and she made extra money for the family selling cosmetics. So I'm thinking like an Avon lady. Yep. Or Mary Kay. Mary Kay was very big back then, too. In 1977, John Grotto had served 60 days in a local jail for molesting his daughter, Evelyn, oh. who was eight years old at the time. Oh, Jesus. As part of a plea in Rensselaer County family court, Grotto also allegedly admitted to abusing their oldest child, Eleanor, nine years old, who was in the third grade. God, and they're having more children? Yes. Ugh. So they have their children. They have Eleanor, nine years old, abused by him. Evelyn, eight years old, abused by him. Francis, five years old. John Jr., four years old. Edward, three. And Sarah and Patricia, who are four-month-old twins. And she's pregnant again when the babies are four months. Yes. Jesus. Okay. On the night of June 2nd, 1978, it was a hot summer night and the family all piled into their Chevy Corvair and drove to see a few movies at a drive-in. The weather started to change and it looked like rain, so the family returned home. Virginia made John something to eat and the family settled in to spend the rest of the night at home in their hot apartment. John fell asleep in his recliner chair that night. The five older kids went to their beds on the third floor of the building, which is the second floor of the apartment. Okay. And Virginia put her four-month-old twins, Sarah and Patricia, into a crib outside her second floor bedroom and settled into bed to watch the late television news. So she's in the bedroom, the kids are in the crib, and the father's on the same floor. He's sleeping in the recliner. And then 
Everybody else is upstairs. Okay. So about an hour later, Virginia awoke to flames and smoke and the sound of children crying. Due to the smoke, she was unable to reach either her children who were upstairs, her husband who was sleeping, or the the babies. Mm. But pay attention. She ran out the front door and screamed, help, save my baby, save my children. The fire was too powerful and Eleanor, Evelyn, Francis, John Jr., Edward, Sarah, and Patricia died that night. And so did their father, John Grotto. He was actually found holding the twin babies on the floor by the front door, which was locked. Okay. Did she do this? The firefighters found the five bodies of the older children huddled near a bed in their third floor bedroom. Mm -hmm. A neighbor who was there and got out safely said the children's bedroom window was inexplicably blocked by a board nailed across it. So it's, it's obviously we're looking at very suspicious circumstances here i i think they're suspicious of course she went out the front door she had to pass the babies sleeping in the crib it was right outside her door according to this and she had to pass her husband to get out the front door and the front door was locked correct who locked the door the fire (laughs) department had to break it down so how'd she get out of it if it was locked or did she lock it when she left (laughs) Or did it have like some um, automatic lock? You know, once it closed, it locked. Right. I don't think I don't so. Know. I looked, tried to look up. It was called a Yale lock, which okay. looks to Ooh, me you're like so smart. One of those deadbolt ones that you have to turn it to lock it. Right. And is she saying that's how she exited, or do they know for sure that's how she exited? Well, I don't know, but that's how it's reported that she exited multiple times. That she went out the front door and screamed for help. I mean, she had to get out, right? So she went out. Right, right. There's no back door to a second floor. Or a window or, you know. Apartment. Right. She went out the door. Right. Okay. So she goes to the hospital. The next morning, she was standing in front of the building that she used to live in. And a reporter was there. And she told the reporter, I've got to stay calm. I'm having another kid in December. And I don't want to lose it. I have to start life over again. Hmm. Then she is reported as climbing into the Corvair and asking someone to move their truck. It must have been blocking her. And she said, I want to get the heck out of here and never come back. I have learned, again, working in a hospital and, you know, seeing situations where people lose their children. And and so you're always taught to, to never judge because you don't really know how you would respond in that type of situation. However, it doesn't seem like that would be my first response. So shortly after the fire, the investigators determined that it was deliberately set by someone who poured an accelerant near the rear porch and lit it. So they also concluded that the fire that engulfed the four-unit apartment building had a second point of origin in the back of the grotto's apartment near the kitchen. Mm. So it's seeming to be that that particular unit was the target. Mm -hmm. And a couple of months later, Virginia left the state and moved to Washington near the Canadian border. She, this is like a couple months later, she married an apple orchard farmer whose brother had sent her a sympathy card offering her a new start out west. 
So the investigation is, is ongoing, and this is some behaviors that police found suspicious. Yeah, I mean, I before you get into them, I'm already finding her behavior suspicious. Especially right. when you're looking at, at the evidence now. And she's 30. It's not like she's 18 making poor decisions. She's 30 years old. She's an adult. I mean, I guess you can argue that, right? She's an adult that just lost her entire family. So you may not act like you're supposed to. However, the first thing out of my mind would be, oh, my God, my children. Oh, my God, my family. I have, I have to get out of here, right? It wouldn't just be, I got to start my life over. And like, it's like there's no remorse for the kids. And obviously she was in a bad situation, right? That maybe she felt like she had to get out of. So I don't know. I, I'm finding her suspicious as well. Well, the prosecutor at the time, Saul Greenberg, is quoted as saying she had just been released from the hospital and she came back to the house and was looking for her purse. You're talking about seven kids and a husband who are no longer there and she's looking for her purse. Right. Now, I, I don't I don't know, but this isn't something you can hold against her. She also wouldn't talk to anyone because she had already retained an attorney. The fire happens at night. The next day, you're released from the hospital and you've already hired an attorney. Right. That seems a little odd. Yeah. He also, um, which we probably as well and listeners find odd, is that she moved to Washington and married so soon after the fire. Yeah. He said that she showed no grief at the loss of her family. Mm -mm -mm. So we're feeling like she did this, right? Yes, but also they're not determining that the fire was an accident. They're saying the fire was deliberate. So someone oh, yes, had it's to arson. Said it. Someone said <laughs> yeah. it. Somebody said it. So, and that's the weird thing with fire. Like you would think that you wouldn't be able to tell something like that, but but they are. Oh, definitely. It's. I mean, I I don't know how they figure out all the stuff they do figure out. No, but they do figure After it out. stuff is totally destroyed by fire, they can still get so much information. Correct. Right, right. Virginia isn't the only suspect, so we're going to explore a few more options here. Mm. John Kilduff, a taxi driver, was one of the first witnesses on the scene. So Kilduff and his brother George, who was a volunteer firefighter, seemed to always show up quickly at fire scenes during the 60s and 70s. And they were in their 20s and 30s around that time. Okay. They were unmarried and lived with their parents. So 13 years before this fire in October of 1965, the brothers were found watching an abandoned shirt factory fire. And so the police, and this is in the neighboring town of Troy, mm -hmm. took them in for questioning they also questioned them about a house fire in 1964 that killed nine children, ranging in age from 2 to 18. And those two brothers actually helped remove the children's bodies after the fire. Oh, God. The police said they made incriminating statements and they were charged with arson and first-degree murder. But in that case, in the 1964 case, but the case was later thrown out when an appellate court ruled their statements to be coerced. Troy police at the time said the brothers had admitted to, admitted to setting 14 fires across Troy. Jesus. So, and they weren't in jail? 
No. Ugh. Well, because they're saying it was coerced. So they got away with... Mm. So John okay. Kildoff's presence... So he's the taxi driver that drove by. His presence at the Grotto Fire on June 2nd, 1978 wasn't something detectives could overlook. So days after the fire... John Kildiff told a Times Union reporter, it's a newspaper, local newspaper, that mm-hmm. he spotted the flames while driving his taxi along Ontario Street. He pulled over, yelled into his cab radio that 108-110 Ontario Street was on fire, and he jumped out to help. He said that he didn't know the grottos, but then later said that he had driven Virginia in his cab. Yeah, I'm wondering if these people work together with her. That's what uh, I'm thinking. Maybe. Uh, that's the only thing I could think of. This is here. called something when you set fires and then you want to be there to save the people. That's called it's like some uh, mental. It, I don't know if it's like a martyr. <laughs> I'm sure that's a like a Samaritan it's syndrome. Like a martyr syndrome. Something. Yeah. I mean, that's probably not the correct term. However, so it seems to me before you go on that these guys were kind of known for this and I don't think it's a coincidence that they happen to be there but I also don't think that she's unaware and I'm wondering if this was a plan together hmm I did not think of that really yeah well I'm also reading everything from the start I'm not hearing it unfold like this you know what I mean Right, right. So well, that's the different. first thing I thought of is that she had some kind of a relationship with him, whether it, you know, not I'm not saying an intimate one, but who knows? Maybe they were in a car together and they were mm-hmm. in cahoots and she was desperate. In and cahoots. Sorry. She was in cahoots. She was in cahoots in cahoots. I don't know. Okay. Well, they did end up looking at his cab fares that night and... They were his alibis, so he wasn't free okay. or around there, but I don't know where his brother was. Right, but uh, that's only that night. Who's to say that she wasn't in his, in, in his cab? Oh, but I'm saying night. he couldn't have set the fire because he wasn't there to do that. Okay. So they ruled him out. Maybe he told her how to do it. I, I don't know. So, okay. Well, here's another suspect. Thomas okay. Mallon. He was 42 when the fire happened. He contacted the police two weeks after the fire. He was John Grotto's friend and claimed to be a boyfriend of sorts to Virginia Grotto. He says, Mm. I wanted to marry her, adding that they met while being treated at a state-run hospital. Met Virginia? He met Virginia while he was being treated at a state-run hospital. And I am not sure if that is a mental hospital or a regular hospital and she was Mm. having one of her 300 babies and he happened to be there for some other reason right well unfortunately Malin died 11 months later so no further information on him but his only connection was that he knew them sort of Mm -hmm. well in april of 1981 john e salmon said that jack buckman offered him money to burn down one of the buildings that he owned and salmon did it so he got arrested. This Jack Buckman also owned the Ontario Street building where the Grottos lived. So they were thinking maybe Jack Buckman paid someone to burn that building down. I mean, I've never heard of so many people setting fires. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus Christ. Well, he's obviously doing it for the insurance money. No, I know, but it just seems like a lot of people in the same area and circle and all these fires. I, I don't know. Okay, sorry, go ahead. Well, none of these leads panned out, and the case goes nowhere for about 30 years. Wow. In 2010, investigators then zero in on Virginia Grotto again as the primary suspect. They go and find her where she's living, and they questioned her for more than seven hours, during which she made incriminating statements and basically admitted to lighting the fire. During this renewed investigation, Raymond Lamora was a firefighter that was there that night, and he stated, A lot of my men who were at that fire, they took that really bad. I've seen them cry. I'd seen their style change completely at a fire. I had guys that were good firemen, but they wouldn't go in a building anymore. I finally said to one guy one time, What the hell is wrong with you? And he said, I'm afraid to see what we saw down there. Yeah, I mean, all those... Babies, yeah. Babies, like, ugh. He had crawled into the grotto apartment on his stomach. He entered through a second-story door that was secured with a Yale lock until being smashed open by his firefighters. So there's the point that the door had to be smashed open. He couldn't just open it. Right, it was locked. So basically, they were locked in, and Virginia went out the front door, which we already discussed, so the assumption is that she locked the door behind her. Yeah, and wasn't there a boarded up window? The kid's window, window was boarded up. Mm-hmm. I mean, why would you board up a window? Especially if it was hot, right? Yeah, it should be open. So first, Lamora found John Grotto, and he said he went up. You know, he's kind of feeling around, and he was shaking his body, and he realized it was him and that he wasn't alive. So he gets out of the apartment, and he sees Virginia, and this is what he's quoted as saying about seeing her that night. He said, I just keep thinking back, my gosh, how could she possibly be in that building in bed when everybody else was in bed and she gets out and looks as good as she did when I first saw her. She didn't look like she was in a hurry to get out or she was burnt or her clothes might be burnt. So right away you form opinions. That's your job. You try to right away figure what the hell happened here. And right at that very time, I was kind of suspicious. And when I was able to talk to her, she wasn't very talkative. I mean, I agree with him. Also, like, you run out, you don't, you can't even grab one kid. The babies are right there. Like, she didn't grab any of them. That just doesn't seem right to me. I'm sorry. No, it doesn't. It doesn't add up. She's saying that her admissions were coerced. And she's maintaining her innocence. And she told in 2010, she called a local newspaper like three or four times to talk about this. And she said, there's no way I would have done such a thing. And when asked if she tried to go back into the house to save her family, she said, yes, I tried to get back in at least for the twins. Mm. Yeah, I'm not buying it. She did say no matter how hard things were with him, she would have never done something like this and that they were her children. I know, but she doesn't seem to care about that. She cared more about her purse and getting out of that house. My biggest point of contention with this whole thing is that I'm picturing, right, she says, this is just from statements, so I could be wrong about the, I don't have a map of the layout, but this is like a government subsidized housing. So it's not this like palatial apartment, right? It's probably got 
the one bedroom on the first floor and a little like common area, kitchen, right. living roomy type thing. And then the, the bedroom upstairs. I can't imagine there's much more. A bathroom somewhere. She says she puts the babies to bed outside of her room. Right. She gets out of the apartment by walking out of her room and runs out. Why wouldn't you grab the babies? Right. Why would you run out screaming, save my kids? They're in there. You could have had two of them out. I just, I don't see how they could have been trapped. I'm not buying it. No, I think she set the fire. Yeah. Walked out the front door before anyone even noticed the fire, locked it, waited a while, and then ran out screaming. Yeah. If you're waking up because of the smoke, then you're going to have some smoke and black. You're going to look like you just came out of a fire. Right. It was almost like she had to get out of there fast so that they couldn't. It's very hard to accuse somebody of something, but I'm sorry. This woman did it. This article says, Fireman recovered the bodies of her four-month-old twins and their father a few steps from the bedroom that Grotto said she fled as she exited the apartment alone through a door later found to be locked. She locked it and left. That's disgusting. That's horrible. Oh, also, so here, she was wearing a nightgown and undergarments, but they got misplaced when she went to the hospital, so they couldn't check them for any smoke evidence or anything like that. She has grandchildren, and they tried to call her sister, who still lives in New York, for comment, and she said, no, I'm sorry, I don't speak of her. So I don't know if she'll ever be convicted of it, but even the grand jury back in the 70s said they knew she did it, but they just didn't have enough evidence to charge her. We'll be back next week for another nefarious New York.